welcome to the Smokies and Wine podcast with JB and Jamie with the best guests, wine and chat. You know it makes sense. Sponsored by Clackenview Wealth Management, working with you today to plan for your tomorrow. Dominic, welcome Smokies and Wine podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. How are you doing? I'm doing very well, fellas. Nice to join you guys as well. And it's good to do a hometown-flavoured podcast. I've never done one of these yet, so it's uh, it's great to do one. Oh, well, I'm sure it'll be the first of many. There's podcast podcast galore going off over here. <laughs> in, our, in our broth especially. You haven't lost your accent too much, mate. Not at all. I see a few eyes getting dropped in there. <laughs> no, I, I haven't. It's one of those things where um, I find, especially if I talk to Scottish people, um, that my accent gets really broad. When we lived in the wonderful Nova Scotia in Canada, it was our first place we lived. And um, we lived in a wee town, Mahone Bay. And so my kids were kind of used to hearing, it's probably my natural voice, but slightly softened for the radio. And then these two boys from Aberdeen, moved into the town and one of them moved next door to me and so my kids would like hear me talking to him on the doorstep and then be literally like all right you feel like me eh? and then <laughs> just lapse right back in it and it would get completely doric between the two of us and my kids would literally say who were the two guys on the doorstep and i would just say oh it's just me talking to you know the next door neighbor and they would say you just didn't sound anything like you normally do so uh yeah i'll probably i find that when i talk to scottish people still my accent gets uh gets more and more broad and for some reason i did i did a podcast in ireland uh, last week and i found my my voice got like I started to take it on an Irish accent. So I don't really know what's happening there with me. That's your, that's your Celtic connection. You're mimicking them, basically. <laughs> yeah. Now, we don't want to get off on the wrong foot, but we do have a bone to pick with you early doors. Oh, oh we, know it's, we know it's early in the morning there, but yeah. of all the guests we've had, you have by far picked the worst beverage for us to have to drink. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, I know. And uh, and the thing is, is that, uh, so my wife uh, works in uh, a, an offie here. They, they don't call them offies, they call them liquor stores. Vicky and, Wines um, Canada, basically. Basically, that's it, yeah. And when I said, uh, and she's really into our wines, and when I said the, the reason, when I said the wine I was picking, she was like, you are kidding. She says, that is the most disgusting wine that we sell. You can't possibly have that. And I said, no, this is what I used to drink at the steeple uh, in our broth when I was a kid and we'd go down there for Hogmanay. And she'd said, oh, so what used to happen at the steeple? I said, there's no way I'm telling you. Yes. I know we said nothing's <laughs> off limits, but that is. <laughs> so for all our listeners, um, Dominic has chosen utter pish. And I'll let... <laughs> And I'll let him explain what it is. It is um, it is uh, what I like to refer to as Arbroath Champagne, uh, <laughs> a.k.a. Asti Spumante from Martini. It was the poshest uh, drink that I could ever afford when I was a kid going down to the steeple. And I noticed that they have since removed the word spumante from yes, the label. It's now, it's now just called Martini Asti. And I read up about it, and apparently it's because it sounded too much like spewing, so they removed the name. That's how it no longer is spumante, because of all these kids get throwing it up at the steeple. No, I thought oh, spew was just like a Scottish word. Is that, an, is that a multicultural word then, the spewing? I think maybe they just sold so many in our broth for Hogmanay that that was enough of a reason. So uh, yeah, let's get this, try and get this open. Hope it doesn't go all over the place. But I've not, I mean, I've no idea. I, I, I don't, I don't like sweet wines 
at all, which is weird because in Canada, especially where I am in uh, Alberta, they have these uh, ice wines, which are all the rage. Oh, these yeah, yeah. That are, but, um, but I'm not into that. So, uh, I, I mean, I just remember this tasting like festivity and kisses. So, come on. There we go. All right. Nice. <laughs> Jesus, man. This is going to be history in a glass. <laughs> it's okay. If me and JB start smoking in half an hour, you'll know, you know what it is. <laughs> Cheers, all, all the best. Cheers, Cheers, fellas. So anyway, on about our growth. Oh, oh my God, man. Oh, that's, oh my God. That's like eating a whole bag of those Haribo sweets that my kids like. Oh, that that's cannot sweet. possibly be bringing back pleasant memories for you, sure, surely. You know, maybe that's how... We did so much snogging down at the steeple was to take the taste of Asti Spumati <laughs> out of our mouths and replace it with whatever someone else had been drinking instead. But um, yeah, so no, that's uh... the taste of fat Margaret Vestrathi is <laughs> is better than this. <laughs> Almost certainly. <laughs> mm. so, what we call this an acquired taste. Is that what we uh, call it? <laughs> Speaking of our broth. Yeah. We, seem to, we seem to be interviewing nothing but JB's neighbours. Because you, <laughs> you grew up in Kearney, didn't you? No, Curtin. I was in Curtin. I was, oh, in, I I was on the other, the other side of the ditch. He's trying yes. to call it the posh bit. He was Kearney. The higher tier. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was good. And, and we used to all kind of get together. There was there was a great wee dip in between uh, where we used to play football. So yep. it was like, you know, every day of the summer holidays, there'd be a bunch of lads from Curtin, a bunch of lads from Kearney, and we'd just kind of sort out teams and play football all day. And there was also the um, the wonderful uh, the the uh, Burnley jumps that we had set up over the over the bit of the Brothic Burn that wound its way through there. That uh, you would be jumping from trees to the other side of the bank and vice versa and swings and everything. It was uh, lots lots of happy times. And of course, right beside the two as well was uh, the Vicks Club, where I, yep. I spent many many happy nights with the family night there as a kid. That was so much fun, absolutely brilliant. Do you mind pennies from heaven? Pennies from heaven. Pennies. Oh, so so on the family nights at the Vicks Club, right? At one point, um, so this is when, I mean, I'd have been, what, nine, ten, so this would be late 70s. And the band would play the song, Every time it rains, it rains, pennies from heaven. And basically the kids would go on the dance floor and all the adults would throw coins on like a highs at a wedding. And it was just brilliant. But they had to stop it after about three weeks because kids were battering the hell out of each other to try and get these coins. And there was rumours that like they were saying buses of kids coming through from Dundee because they heard they could get 50 pence. (laughs) (laughs) So so it was like full-scale war after a while. And then it was actually banned. But it was a wonderful, it was one of the the greatest things in my childhood. It was brilliant. I I just remember the claim to fame of the the Vix Club, the Kearney, was uh, George Best was in there. Because he did an exhibition. That's and, right. I heard yeah. that. Yes. But one of the best things was he had Miss World with him as well. <laughs> Mary Stavin was with him. Because I have a good friend, Brian Chapman, he played and he was sitting having a pint with George Best and Miss World. Oh, <laughs> if, if only that had been at Hogmanay, he might have taken her down to the steeple. We might have, <laughs> we might have shared some spumante with her. I think George <laughs> Best would have liked a few spumantes there. Eh? No half. See, just for you mentioning the Vicks Club. Dom, yeah. did you? I know they had the family nights. Did you ever go to the ones? You, it might have just been before your time. I used to go down there when I was young, and they had these sort of 
I dare say they would call them open mic nights now, but back then it was just anybody want to come up and do a wee turn? And That's, me and my yeah. pals at sort of eight, nine, ten would go up and basically do the shaking vat adverts and stuff like that. <laughs> yeah. Was, yeah. was that in your time? Yeah, no, that, and and that was that was always part of the family nights as well. And and uh, my my dad Terry was a pub singer at the time, and you know he used to play in the um uh, the, the the central, the national, all those kind of pubs, yep. the corner bar, and uh, so he would always get up and sing a bit. And uh, and we were in uh, there was a thing called the Angus Children's Theatre that was run at the Webster Theatre at the time by uh, Anne Craig and uh, Maris Doig. They were called. They were the two, two people who first set me on the kind of course yep. to, to to entertainment. They were absolutely brilliant. So uh, and my mum was always keen on us doing stuff. So we would always do a turn at those nights. We'd always get up and and like sing a song or tell a few jokes. Um, and between that and um, it was a, it was a really competitive town to grow up in for kids back then because you had like. The talent nights at the Vicks Club, you had uh, the pool, but the fancy dress co- competitions and the Mr. Muscles and all that stuff, we'd enter at the swimming pool. And then you had the festivals every year and that, that I used to enter in the Arbroath Festival. So it was, um, there was always some kind of arty kind of entertainment competition going on uh, as a kid there for sure. So you were always arty and acting and singing just from a young age. That's where it all started. Yeah, that, that and, and the football I played for uh, uh, Rancel as a kid. I don't know if Rancel yeah. exists as a boys' club now or not. Um, and that was uh, uh, who ran that? Graham Duff's dad. Graham Duff was a kid uh, who lived um, in Glebe Road with us, who was just the best goalkeeper I'd ever seen. Probably the best goalkeeper I'd ever seen in my life. If I ever get asked that question on a football podcast, who's the best keeper you've ever seen? I'll say Graham Duff. That really confused him. But his dad ran the team, and I loved playing for them. And I, I was in the Inverbrothic school team. And then the way my mum tells it is the uh, there was a, they started a chess team at the same time for Inverbrothic. I think it must be one of the first chess teams in a school back then. And apparently the headmaster himself, the uh, the legendary Harry C. Lyon, he yes. basically, he, he had said, he phoned up my parents and said, uh, the chess team stuff's the same time as the football stuff. And uh, and uh, Dominic's uh, one of the few people who plays chess. So could you ask him to b- go play for the chess team instead of the football team? And so I say, that's why I never made it as a footballer. Because they forced me to represent Inverbrothic at chess. Chess stole me from football. And the thing is, I don't think I've ever played chess since I was a teenager, uh, so um, so yeah, but it was like entertainment stuff and football. That 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 was what it was growing up. Then I'm loving this Astley's Pimanti. By the I way, can see that. I can see that. <laughs> now I'm reading. I'm reading in the, that last little story that what I think is you're shit at football. Oh no, I played. I played. I played. I played at, I played at Wembley. <laughs> when, uh, one, of, one of the great things that uh, I managed to do as a result of Games Master was, I think this would have been about uh, maybe 94, 95, 96. They used to have these uh, celebrity games before the uh, auto windscreens final. And there never used to be that much of a crowd there, maybe 30,000. But this year it was Birmingham City were one of the teams. So it was literally, it was like 84,000. And I was playing um, on my team. There was a... it was me, Chris Evans, Angus Dayton from Have I Got News For You, Stan Boardman, uh, and the other team, there was Jim Rosenthal, Todd Carty from EastEnders, and Grage Hill. And uh, I'll never forget that day. I was a, I, I was a left a left winger, you w- won't be surprised to hear. 
And um, <laughs> so, so um, I remember that day, two things. John Alford, who was a young lad from London's Burning, he was yeah, in that, yeah. that thing. He was in the uh, Grange Hill as well, I think. Actually, I think he. I think he was. So he was. Uh, he was leading. That he was at the front of the line when we walked out onto the pitch, and uh, he's juggling the ball on the sidelines. And then we get the sign right. Walk on the pitch. Eighty-four thousand fans go mental. This boy John Alford juggles the ball all the way right to the centre circle. Keep it up. Keep it up. Keep it up. Does that thing? Picks it up. Catches it on the back of the neck. Oh, everything. No. I'm like, oh my god. And so the best I did was a nutmegged Jim Rosenthal. Um, uh, down the wing, and then uh, uh, I flicked it past Todd Carty, and uh, and I remember Stan Boardman, who was the worst guy to play football with because he was a greedy bastard, and I, all he could say was, "Hey, hey, pass it here, pass it here, pass it here," and uh, so um, so yeah, I, I not make Jim Rosenthal. I got past Todd Carty, and I can't remember who it is. Someone came in and tackled me because I just thought I was at the edge of the box. I'm at Wembley. There's no way I'm passing to anyone. And someone came in and just took me out, man and ball. I can't remember who it was. And I'm kind of lying there. I open my eyes, and Stan Boardman's leaning over me, calling me all the FNCs you've heard in your life. So that, that, was, my, that was my Wembley experience. It, it was a good one. You, what would you say your earliest accolade was then, um, you know, that started you off in this whole thing? You, you mentioned the swimming pool, you know, the paddling pool and things like that. Were you ever one of the Mr. Muscles or Bonnie Babies or any of that stuff? Yeah, I was. I was a Mr. Muscles, which is uh, uh, incredible Shocking. because I literally, I had an arm like, you know, it was like uh, twa twigs. And uh, But I think the first time that I kind of felt an achievement was at the, was at the festival. And so I would do like the poetry reciting um, and I played classical guitar at the time. So I would do the classical guitar stuff. But I think... One year they did impromptu speech making and I'd never done anything like that before. And I think, if I remember correctly, I think it was an open category and it was with adults and I and I was the only kid doing it and I and I, I won that. And I can't remember what the what the subject was, but I thought, you know what? I can actually talk pish about anything and maybe maybe there's some way I can make, turn that into some kind of career, you know, because obviously I'm not good enough as a footballer. You know, I like singing, but I'm not that good. I like acting, but I'm not that good. But you know what? I can probably talk pish uh, with the best of them. So I think that's definitely where thoughts of being a presenter definitely that's started. amazing connection because I've been talking pish for years and I never thought about it as a career. <laughs> You left Inverbrook. Did you go right through primary one to seven at Inver and then, then head over to Strathallen or how did, what? No, three three different schools. Uh, I went to Hayshead. Uh, it was my first school because we lived in Horlodge Hill at the time, right at the top of that hill. Great house. Oh, loved that house. Uh, backed onto the big park, the swings and everything. It was just, oh, loved that house. And we had... Um, the best neighbours a kid could have. There were a family called the Milnes, and there was a, there was Mister and Missus Milne. She was just like like an extra granny, but all her kids. She said, it was like the Bruins in her house. There seemed to be about twenty kids, <laughs> and they all read comics. And I would go, I would go next door, and they'd all let me read their, you know. So it was like the Beano and the Dandy, and then the Victor and all the war comics and everything. So it was a great, the best neighbours I ever had. And then we had the swings out the back. And I remember the, uh, I remember the swings because it was the first time I ever split my head open. Was at those swings, and uh, a girl, a lovely girl called Sally, can't remember her last name. Local lass used to look after us as kids. Obviously not that well because I got my head split open. It was uh, there was a boy called Mark, and I remember I was running. It was one of my earliest memories. Must be about three years old. 
running, hypnotised to the swings, and it just came back and took me clean off um, and split my head open. Uh, yeah, so it was Hayshead, and then I went to Lady Lone, um, which, because we moved up to Kirkton, and there wasn't enough room at Inverbrothic, uh, so I had to get the bus down to Lady Lone, but it was okay because uh, my granny Diamond lived near that school. And uh, so that was that was good. And then Inverbrothic from about primary four, I think that that, that would have been. But Inverbrothic was uh, Inverbrothic was brilliant. It was just such a that building was just so beautiful. What a, that great old school building that they had was was absolutely fantastic. Now, did you go to the high school? No, I, no to- I never went to the high school. I'd, I'd be I'd, I'd got to Strathallen School uh, by that time. I was getting into a wee bit of um, kind of low grade trouble. Because I was uh, I was finishing my work uh, before other people in the class, so I started to muck around a bit, and I, I started doing a couple of naughty things for like a nine year old. That thing where you um you get the you get the dog shite and you uh, you you put it in the newspaper and you set shite fire to it. Ah uh, yes, and you put it on the doorstep, and they come and try and stamp out the fire. Uh, so I was up to all that stuff, and my mum was like, "Oh, this this isn't going to end well." So uh, she took the really brave step of getting me to take a, a scholarship exam for this posh school uh, just outside Perth, uh, Strathallen, and so I ended up. I got a scholarship to there and, and went there from from the uh, from the age of ten, and uh, and it was a very very privileged. Uh, education that I had there. It was brilliant, brilliant teachers. And we never paid for half of it, which was great. Um, so, uh, so no, that, that was good. I was, uh, I was very lucky. So no, I never got to go to the high school uh, or the academy or anything like that. Uh, my, my father was at Strathallen. Uh, Strathallen. <coughs> oh, really? Yeah, uh, he was. So my mum was always keep saying, you need to ask him about Strathallen, but yeah. Oh, it was, it was obviously, brilliant. obviously like 40 yeah. years before you were there, but. Yeah. <laughs> no, it was, it was lovely. And, and what it was, was that, and, and I look at, you know, I look at education now, and especially when it comes to sports and how, uh, you know, teachers aren't available to teach kids sports in the way that they used to be. And what that, that was what was brilliant was, was going to a place where the teachers, you know, stayed in the school as well. They were always available for, you know, any extra sessions that you wanted coaching with, whether it was rugby or cricket or anything like that. The sporting side was just, was, was absolutely first class. It was really good. Strathallen live in then? Did you have to live in at Strathallen? Yeah. yeah, no, yeah. So from the age of ten, that was that was me. Well, actually, I think I would have been no ten years old. Yeah, I had to leave home and, and kind of stay in a dormitory um, and uh, with uh, with guys from like Bahrain and places like that, and super rich parents. So that took that took a couple of years to get used to. I was really really homesick. There, you know, there was a there was a couple of guys there, especially in the first couple of years, who would take the piss at you because you were the token poor kid on the scholarship, and so it made me kind of want to try hard to kind of you know to beat them be as good as them and I think that's how it kind of just it it fostered a work ethic in me that is kind of how I managed to to have a career really because there's a there's a lot of funny people doing tv and radio and there's a lot of clever people doing tv and radio so the trick is is that if you're not quite as funny or not quite as clever or not quite as cool or good looking as them you got to work twice as hard as them and then that's definitely where it started and from Strathallen straight on to Bristol was it? Took a took a year off 
Uh, yeah, so uh, so I really I really wanted to go to uh, Oxford University because again I was so competitive by that point. It's like that's the top of the league, that's the Champions League. I want to go there. Sorry if you can hear beeping. By the way, some big guys building a house opposite, and some big vans just turned up. Anyway, so uh, just to let you know that I, I I live in a real street. I don't live in some posh place. I live in a place with vans turning up, even in Canada. So the castle across the road is getting renovated, is it? <laughs> It's a semi. And uh, yeah, so so I was like, I was going to go to Oxford University. When I was doing my A-levels, I applied and I went down for the interview thinking I was the absolute dog's bollocks and I was the cleverest kid in the world. And I got the plot of King Lear wrong during my interview. And uh, not only that, but then I proceeded as a 16-year-old to try and tell this 70-year-old Oxford professor that, no, he was the one that had the plot wrong. <laughs> That I was in fact correct. So uh, obviously I didn't get in there. And then I I, I was uh, stupid and arrogant enough to think that if I took a year off and applied again, I would get in. And uh, so I spent a year in uh, Milton Keynes, which is where my mum and dad had moved down to by that stage. Yeah. And I worked for a building company. So I just kept working harder and harder and I kept climbing up and up. And I found myself at the end of that year, I was purchasing manager on a contract for the United States Air Force, building houses for them in Bicester and in, in, uh, in Clay Hill in Surrey. And I was only 19. Within a year? Within a year, yeah. No, it was just one of those weird things. It was the right job at the right time. I, just, I really, really loved it. And so by that point, I'd failed again to get into Oxford. I had a place at Bristol University and I nearly turned it down because they, they offered me the same job in Germany, build a, a purchasing manager for the US air bases out there. So I, I might have ended up, you know, working. I might, I might have been working in the, the building industry. So Bristol, though, yeah, pretty cool. That was, uh, it was quite that the bed of comedy talent and everything, yeah? A, cu- a couple of things were great about it. It's a beautiful city. It's a brilliant city, full of atmosphere and history. And there was a lot going on at that time. There was a, there was a great burst of music happening there, bands like Massive Attack and everything and coming up. So there was definitely, you felt there was something in the water. And I was uh, lucky enough to just be part of an amazing group of people at that time who, who did drama. And there was Simon Pegg and David Walliams. Jason Bradbury, who went on to present the Gadget Show, Mavamwe um, Moore, who became head of BBC Comedy, she produced uh, Little Britain, and I. Um, so when I started off doing stand up there, I ended. Up, I was the first one to do stand up, and and these guys were obviously funny as well. So I'd said to them, "Look, you know, I want to start my own comedy night." And if you guys, because I'd seen Simon do bits and pieces at student things by this point, I knew he was a genius. So, yeah, so we had the thing that ran uh, for a few months, David Icke and the Orphans of Jesus. And, uh, and that was great. That was brilliant. So that was the first kind of stand-up debuts of, of Simon and, and David and, and people like that, you know, and they they obviously went on to do to do pretty well for themselves. So it was a it was a great time. It was, it was a good time to be there. Good people. Well, I heard David Ike. He's not such a good goalkeeper as Graham Duff. I don't think. No, he's not. <laughs> How did it feel doing the stand up then? Because that was that was what you really sort of wanted to do at the start, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. Um, it's weird. It kind of goes in two stages. I started off just doing stuff for my fellow students, and that was pretty easy. But then this uh, this talent agent came to Bristol and he represented Frank Skinner, Phil Jupitus, uh, people like that, Henry Normal. And he he did a comedy workshop and I went along and I did I did my little 10 minutes. And so he's like, listen, do you want to 
do you want to come and do some gigs supporting Frank and Phil? And I was like, yes. Yeah. So I was only like 19 at the time. And uh, and so all of a sudden I found myself in these really rough working men's pubs in Birmingham, tiny wee round glasses, fresh faced. And I decided because I was now doing comedy in front of grown-ups, I had to do grown-up comedy. So I had to do political comedy. Before that, I, my act used to be, it was basically, most of my act was um, about the, the how terrifying it was to try and buy a packet of condoms in boots in Arbroath when everybody knows you. So that was basically my thing that I used to do. It's- it's still bad. It's just still bad. <laughs> and uh, do you know what's bad about it now? Uh, you know, I mean, when I I happen to glance at the aisles, it's so much more complicated now, isn't it? Like back in those days, there was just like there was two, there was Durex, and then Durex Extra Strength. Now there's creams and lubes and squirty things, and that. it's just it's unbelievable. It, I, I get confused. I keep thinking it's like the Easter eggs on sale there when I go <laughs> in. <laughs> but I, um, but I decided that I would do political comedy, and uh, and because I was I was very militantly left wing and, and and still am so. I would literally bound onto the stage as a 19-year-old. Hands up, who hates Maggie Thatcher? And there'd be these like kind of welders and that in the audience. They would say, shut your fucking mouth, you spicky twat. And uh, so I absolutely died a death. And I remember once, um, and it was uh, Frank Skinner. And even though he wasn't, he, he wasn't on the telly yet, but he was, you know, he was a very established comedian. And I remember sitting in, in up in the back of the pub having died on my arse and I was nearly in tears and I was, I'd never been so depressed in my life and Frank comes up and I'm like oh here's Frank he's going to be like the big brother to me and he'll, he'll sort me out and he's like hey you were fucking shit weren't you <laughs> <laughs> you know that way he smiles when he speaks and um and I was just like oh Frank no and he said and I'll tell you why you were and he sat down and he dissected my act because he's really clever, Frank, isn't he? He was so clever. He really was, John. He was such a help. And he was like, first thing, uh, if you want to do comedy, do comedy about what you know. Uh, he said, forget that you know nothing about politics. You're only 19. Go. So I was on a couple of nights later, and I went back to the condom stuff and threw in some other stuff. And, uh, and that went, went wanking then, isn't it? It has to be just wanking. <laughs> exactly, basically. And that actually, a little did I know that that formed the basis of, uh, of Games Master, <laughs> all the jokes on Games Master. <laughs> and um, so, so that was it. But I, I, I was lucky in that um, by the time I got Games Master, which was just after I left university, I knew by that stage that I, stand-up comedy was way too hard. I was trying to do it in clubs in London at that point in the comedy store and it's just I was too young uh, I didn't know my craft well enough and it's a horrible it's the most horrible lonely job if it doesn't go well because you just feel there's a whole room of people who absolutely hate your guts and if I wanted that I'd go to the Calgary Rangers Supporters Club you know (laughs) (laughs) but but you were on some gigs with like Steve Coogan and people like that so you you were almost a really high caliber you know yeah Steve Coogan, uh, and uh, yeah, that was the Buzz Club in Nottingham. Right. And uh, again, that was another, oh, that was another terrible night. Guy before me, guy called Richard Morton, I think. He, had, he did some TV. He used to do comedy songs. As soon as he got up on stage, some guy went up and ripped the guitar out of his hand. <laughs> it's just, it's just, the Buzz Club in Nottingham was run by a guy called Malcolm Hardy, who was a, a legendary comedian at the time. I think he's dead now. And he was very much uh, uh, one of those compares who just begs 
people to to have a go at him. He really wants you to heckle, and uh, but it was a rough club. It was like a gladiatorial arena. So uh, so yeah, I just realised that um, no, it wasn't. Uh, I wasn't cut out for that. And then you know, luckily enough, I realised that TV presenting was so much easier, a uh, hundred times easier than stand up comedy. And luckily, I, I kind of fell into that. How how did you fall into the games master? What was the process there? I just uh, again, it was it was through failing. Uh, lots of my best successes in life have come as a result of failing at something else first. So they had open auditions for a show called The Word, which I think was 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 my favourite TV show at the time, and was uh, was a, a late night show that had uh, it was like chat show and musical guests and crazy stunts. It was just total anarchy. You never knew what was going to happen next. Such an exciting show, and they held open auditions. It was like they had 18,000 people applying and I got to the final 12 of that and uh, just didn't quite make it. I, I think I just, I remember everybody looking so cool, so cool in that room and it was terrifying. There was just me, this dweeby guy. And uh, so I think I just didn't look the part and and uh, so I was absolutely gutted. And uh, and I, that was it. I was like, okay, I'm giving up everything. That's it. I'm giving up stand up. I'm giving up TV dreams. I was working as a, I was working as a security guard in um, for the Abbey National in Milton Keynes, which I have to say actually is a good job because um, I was an overnight security guard. So I just had to sit in front of those cameras and I just like read books. And then do you know what? As jobs go, it's not a bad job. I, I'd like that. I'd like to retire into that kind of job. So, but then I got a call from from these guys saying, "Oh, listen, we're doing this." A show about video games um would like you to audition we spoke to people from the ward someone recommended you so i went down to this uh church uh, in uh, east london and made some knob gags <laughs> and, uh, and they really liked them and so that was uh so so that was it and then i got i got games master so it was it really was um it was unbelievably lucky. It really was. Speaking of knobs, was it Terry mm. Christian that beat you to the punch? <laughs> no, he was already on the show, actually. Oh, I think right. it was it was Katie Puckrick, the girl oh, with the long yeah. red hair. She was the one that got it in the end, actually, when uh, when I didn't. So, yeah, not Terry. Terry. I crossed paths with Terry quite a bit in the 90s. He's all right because I, I would slag the shit out of him as much as the next guy. But then I, I, I met him a few times and he was he's a good guy. And these days he's kind of um, morphed into this kind of – he's quite a serious – left-wing political commentary. He really is. He's really politically active yeah, these on days. Twitter and everything. Yeah, That's exactly. Right. Yeah, yeah, he is. He, is, he, is, he, he came he's across in the world as an absolute dunderhead. He was just a I, numpty. I know, yes, he was. Games Master then, how much fun did you... And I, I, I don't expect you to sort of spill every secret because obviously we'll come on to the book, um, but how much fun did you actually have on, on the Games Master stuff? Well, I think if, um, if you imagine when you were in your early 20s, the things that you kind of loved was having a bevy, hanging out with attractive women or men, you know, 2021, it's all good. Uh, playing video games, going to the football, going to sport. And I just basically, I did all that. And I had that every day was was either, um, you know, it was a movie premiere or a video game launch party or going to a football match or going to the boxing in, in Manchester or whatever. I saw so many great, boxers at that time you know and, and kind of hanging out with with kind of rock stars and and footballers and it was um i mean it was a, it was amazing it, it's just a shame that i a i don't remember 
uh, all of it now because I, I really did party hard, and also because I. I, I I turned into a, a bit of a dick. I think it's difficult not to, I think, to get that level of fame and money so young. Um, I think it's really difficult to handle it anyway, but it really did. It sent me kind of quite mad. And I wasn't I wasn't a mad, I wasn't a great person then. I made a lot of silly, silly decisions. Uh, I had a lot of fun. But um, it's not a, it's not quite a path I would go down again. If I I would certainly drink. Less. It's funny I was I was talking to Richard Herring about this the other day, and because Lee and Herring came up at the same time, and he was saying that he never did the party side. He wasn't a big drinker. He wasn't a big partier, and so he actually feels that um, he didn't enjoy it either because he feels he missed out. He feels he went the opposite. So I think the middle ground would have been a good one, you know, to kind of go to. But but I was just like. Oh, I mean, I just... I know which one I would choose. Yeah, I know. You've been a boring twat and getting off your head. I know which one I'd choose. But it was just it was just that ridiculous thing where, you know, you just felt that your money would last forever. So if I was going out, if a new restaurant in London opened, it wasn't enough just for me to go along. I'd invite like 10 of my pals and pay the whole bill and, and all that stuff. And you just, you kind of think it would, it never ends. And, and then you have kids and you realise they're more expensive than any of that <laughs> stuff. And you wish you'd saved some of that party money from the 20s for everything that they need, you know? Just on the the, the party scene and, and things like that, did you... Well, it's obviously a big drinking culture back then, oh, yeah. but there was also a fairly big drug culture. Um, and yeah. I, whether you were involved in that or not, do you, you must get offered it all the time. Uh, yes, um, uh, and, uh, and my mother always told me it was rude to uh, refuse gifts. Um, so... Um, <laughs> Yeah, no, I got I I got seriously waylaid uh, by that cocaine uh, in particular, um, and uh, and that that absolutely that nearly killed me, and that really really screwed up my life. That was a, a terrible, a terrible thing. You know, it's, it's people talk about there's this there's this kind of myth that drugs kind of make you creative and there's a little something that's really cool and artistic about it, and you know people say like oh the, the Beatles wouldn't have written what they did if they weren't on LSD and like marijuana makes you more creative. The only side effect of cocaine is it makes you want more cocaine. I mean it's horrible. It's just it's 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 like nicotine in that way. It's just the most horrible drug. It, it makes you feel that you're completely indestructible, and that's never a good thing. Yeah, it's uh, I, I, but you know we were all on it. I mean, you just couldn't you couldn't go anywhere without it being there. You'd go <laughs> to pal at the time who would never buy any, and he would just go into the toilets wherever we were in London, and he would just run his finger on the cistern and just take that. And it's like, oh my god, you know, there was just so much. I think there was a thing that like ninety six percent of banknotes in circulation in London at the time, twenty pound banknotes had traces of cocaine there. Um, I, I, I won't. I won't name names, but you know, the, the, this this times there was a, a very famous uh, rock star at the time called me into the toilets of uh, this this great bar. I used to go to Notting Hill, and he would have a, a, effectively a crisp bag just full of it and a straw coming out. So I think even if even if I'd wanted to resist it, it would have been really hard. But it, it caused uh, a lot of problems at the time, and it certainly caused a lot of problems in, in later life. It was something that I fought very hard to give up and relapsed a few times. And uh, and it had severe repercussions on uh, my mental health 
And thankfully, that's uh, that's well in the rear view mirror. That's one thing that I left on the shores of the UK well behind when uh, when I went to Canada. No, it's not something. If anyone's, if anyone thinks, you know, is sitting there going, you know what I'm going to do? You know what I'm going to do tonight? I'm going to sit down with that Smokies and Wine podcast and do cocaine for the first time. I hope this stops you. I don't, <laughs> I don't know how many of your listeners that represents, but if you ever think, don't. Just Just don't. the host. That, it's just, yeah, just the, They're all just doing bottles of Asti. <laughs> yeah, stick to the Asti. That's it, kids. <laughs> now, before we move to Canada, I just want to touch on the on, on mm. the Games Master because you had a, a bit of a fallen out on Series 3, I think it was. And yeah. Dexter obviously stepped in, but was it not yeah. something to do with McDonald's? Yeah, it, it's, you know, it, it's interesting, JB, because... Um, there's so much of of uh, of this book, Games Master, the oral history that th- th- so many things that we've revisited, like things we thought was what happened. That are certainly things that I thought was the way it happened at the time. But what what's great about this book is the editor tracked down everybody who worked on the show, producers, directors, researchers, runners, contestants who came on, celebrity guests, everyone for their recollections, and the boss of Games Master, Jane Hewland, who came up with the idea, has a very different recollection of events of why I left for series three. It wasn't just McDonald's. And that made me go, oh, hang on. And there was a lot of other stuff at that time going on. There was lots of battles between me and Channel 4 um, and me and Shuland International. The show had become such a money-making machine that I think everybody, the three parties, the production company, Channel 4 and me, are specifically my agent, all got a bit greedy and all wanted their part of the pie. It's interesting, very similar things happening with the book, because the book's just been so much more successful than we thought. <laughs> so uh, I hope the publisher doesn't listen to this. I'm only kidding, Darren. <laughs> so yeah, so th- there was there was a lot of that as well. And I had started to go mad with the success of it. So I was making silly decisions based on, on kind of being unbelievably arrogant at the time. And I wish I'd handled that better. I mean that that could have been it. The, the the viewing figures for series three were not good. The show was critically panned, and Channel Four were were about to cancel the whole thing. You know, I, I tried to get other things off the ground in that year that they had failed. So uh, you know, the show and me that might have been it for all of us. But luckily, they got me back. Channel Four were like, "All right, if you can get Dominic back, we'll give you one more chance." So I came back, and we got it right. We got it back on the rails. And you don't really, you never really get that chance with a with a TV show. You know, so I was I was very lucky that that we did. And you yeah. got six, seven years out of it, yeah. <clears throat> yeah, seven seven series in the end. And we weren't even supposed to do seven. That that was what was quite bizarre. Very strange, unique show in that we uh we we did season six and I was moving off to channel five at the time. I was one of their launch presenters. I did a late night sports show live and dangerous. So I was like series six we felt was was just brilliant. We got it all right, we were so happy with it. Everybody was moving on and we were like, that's it. That's the last series we're doing. Brilliant. And and what is almost unbelievable, Channel 4 literally did not open the email. And so like (laughs) six months later, they, they call up the production company saying, where's your, where's your publicity material for series seven? And they said, well, we're not, we're not doing a Series 7. And like, what do you mean you're not doing a Series 7? We've got it in the schedules. <laughs> like, so um, so basically, there was a whole load of phone calls that had to be made 
And um, that's why the last series was only 10 episodes rather than uh, than 18 or, or 22 or 24, because we had to postpone it. We said, well, there's no way we can get anything together because it was like six weeks before they planned to air it. Luckily, as I did uh, often in my career, I had fallen out with Channel 5 by this point. I was I was hating that job. I was about ready to tell them to shove it up their arse. And, uh, and then I got this phone call. Listen, I'm really sorry, Dominic, but is there any chance... You could come back and do another see I was like, just tell me the time and the place. Hi. And hi, Channel Five, up your ass. That was basically <laughs> it. So then so then we went and got that that seven series, which was just was so much fun. It really was. We were just so relaxed and just it was like uh, it was like a kind of stag night in a lot of ways. It was like a bunch of guys, friends getting together and having one last hoorah. So that that, that was a lot of fun. And from your perspective, because I need to go back to it because I've not got it out of my head yet. What was the thing with McDonald's? Well, I was politically opposed to them at the time. My wee brother, Michael, um, who uh, many people in our both will remember fondly for numerous appearances in Panto and that at the Webster Theatre, bless him. He was <laughs> a militant teenage political agitprop revolutionary on the streets of Milton Keynes by this stage. And so he had found out all the stuff that McDonald's were doing about the deforestation they were carrying out in South America. So he started doing an anti-McDonald's leaflet campaign in Milton Keynes. Like he was about 12, right? 14 anyway. So I was like, I started reading up on it and I was like, do you know what? You're absolutely right, Michael. And then, so when they said McDonald's was sponsoring it, I was like, no, I can't do that. My, my brother's, my brother sends out leaflets about them. I mean, sponsorship of TV shows and sponsorship of stuff is always a bit dodgy anyway. Like I don't yeah. like, you know, even myself, I don't like betting companies sponsoring football teams. I think that's just a minefield. I'm a, you know, gambling is one of the few things that I've not been able to kick over the years. And it's so, you just don't need more advertising for it. So, uh, so yeah, sponsorship is a difficult thing. Um, I, I'm, I'm not a fan of it. I know sadly it's a necessity now. So then um, that was one of the things when they, phoned me up, uh, asked me to come back as well as an extra zero on the check. There was, uh, <laughs> it was, you know, I said, well, we can't have any McDonald's sponsorship. And they said, well, hang on. They signed a two-year deal. It's still got to run. There's nothing we can do about it. McDonald's will sue us if you want to go to court against McDonald's, Dominic. Fair enough. And I'm like, yeah, no, really. So we, we let it run for that Series 4, and then that was it. We never had a sponsor again. Now, you had uh, Robbie Williams as your forward in yeah. In this now yeah. he's on with he was on with take that wasn't he? He's quite Aye, chuffed, he's a, there, isn't he? He's he's a he's a, such a lovely guy. I, I I tell you he um so uh so yeah he was on series two with with take that playing a super bomber man and and you, they were you know I mean they, they were they were all nice guys but you could tell Robbie was really into it. He was a fan of the show anyway, so he won the the golden joystick and he was the one I got on the best with on the day and I kept bumping into Robbie. <laughs> over the course of the nineties and some great situations. There's one I, I, I well, just we've already spoken about your drug habits. So there's there's the connection. Well, there's 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 a wee tease of, of one of the stories in the book that's told at length. And it, all I will say is it involves it was the first ever tea in the park. It was the after show. It involves me and Robbie and Noel Gallagher and one of the most embarrassing failures of my life. So um so I kept bumping into Robbie randomly. But I haven't obviously seen him for years. And so we were trying to think who to get to do the forward. 
And we're like, okay, so we want someone who was a guest on the show. We want someone who was who sums up the 90s. And we want someone who's still big today. And there was really our two kind of ones that we were really hoping for was either Robbie or Zoe Ball. Tried Robbie first and just literally wrote a, a, a note to him, to his agent, and said, could you pass this on? And it was like, hey, Robbie, I don't know if you remember me, Dominic Diamond from the 90s. Uh, we're doing this book. We'd love you to write your foreword. So no word of a lie, three days later, there's a, in my email box, there's an email from uh, Rob W. I'm like, I don't know, a Rob W. And I click it and it's, it's Robbie Williams. And he's not only written the foreword and it's brilliant and he really loves the show. And the, the golden joystick has been in every house displayed that he's ever lived in. But he also said to me, he's like, so how have you been since the 90s? He's like, I can't believe we both survived it. Um, he said, I've kicked all that stuff now. I don't drink or anything like that. I'm in, I'm in Los Angeles. I think I'm going to start gardening. Now, I love gardening. It's one of the things I've really taken up in Canada because we first of all had a, a wee farm in, in Nova Scotia. And so I'm like, oh, well, Robbie, here's what, if you want to start gardening, it's great. So I spent a week swapping emails from me in Calgary and Robbie Williams in Los Angeles about horse manure and how important it was for his vegetables. So that was lovely. You know, there's been, a, there's been so many great things that have happened in the last six months, you know, because of the book. And that was just one of, that was a lovely little, little kind of byproduct of it. Who kicked the idea of the book off then? Was it you or was it someone else? No, it was a, a wee guy called Jack Templeton who started off as the original Games Master superfan uh, back in the day. He was the first guy to run a website dedicated to it and just, you know, the, the, the wee shit never stopped hassling me over the years. And uh, eventually at some point we became friends and he's a lovely guy. So he, he wanted to mark the 30th anniversary, which is January 2022. He wanted to mark it in some way. So... He said, you know, why don't we try and do a version of it on, on YouTube or Twitch or something? And we couldn't because we don't have the rights. So he said, look, you know, why don't I see if there's a market for the book? So it was his idea to get in touch with everyone. And he said, if there's enough memories there, will you will you thread them all and, and tell your story? And he did an absolutely incredible job. He really did. And so it's uh, it's all it's all really down to him. He did a great job. Fantastic. And it's became, I think you mentioned a, on on, on something that it's it's one of the fastest filled Kickstarter. Yeah, I I said it's the fastest selling, fastest funded book in the history of Kickstarter, and the publisher shat his pants when I said that. And he said, <laughs> "Oh, you can't say that. You can't say that because I don't know if it is. I know it's one of the." And I said, "Have you learned nothing from Donald Trump? Just say it." Just say it. <laughs> By the time someone works out it's not true, no one can remember. So, uh, so yeah, as far as I'm concerned, it's the most successful book in the history of Kickstarter. Well, that's, that's good because you're, you're on the most widely listened podcast globally. <laughs> <There you go. laughs> that's it. That's it. So we, so we got the um, – we kind of had a 28-day funding campaign and we managed to fund it in uh, one day and four minutes, which was great because it allowed us to then come out with – all these things like what what's great i've never done a kickstarter thing before that what's good about it is um that you sell different versions of the book i mean it's a nice book to begin with it's like it's a posh book you know it's like it's it's hardback it's like got metallic lettering and kind of posh i don't understand the stuff but the publisher tells me multiple paper stocks whatever that is um it's printed in italy i think which is like oh nice so yeah so it's really nice anyway and lots of photos from behind the scenes that people haven't seen before 
but you can offer different versions. So there's a thing like uh, the Poet Master, which you pay a bit more, and I will handwrite a limerick about you and the show in the front pages. There's there's other ones which you get a Zoom call Q and A for people who aren't lucky enough to have podcasts like yourself. That that's a nice way of getting it on the cheap, eh? Fly, fly <laughs> bastards, aren't you? So um, we're waiting on the limerick. Um, yeah. <laughs> so um so yeah so that's what's good about about having managed to kind of fund the basic books so quickly that we're able to kind of keep coming up with ideas you know like that like we we, we did one today which we just launched today called the consultation zone and that was part of the show where people would ask patrick more the games master questions about games we're doing a version of that in the book so basically you get your uh, name and your question and i answer it in the style of of the games master so we released that today we said there was tw- we had room for 12 of them and it's going to be in a nice little spread like the games master magazine and they went within an hour all those 12 boom like that so we've got you know the campaign runs till the 22nd of uh, april so we'll, we'll have a couple more surprises up our sleeves of, of uh, a wee exclusive versions of the book i think and for those that want to get involved in it, how do they still get involved then? Where do they go? How do they find it? Can we put something out for you? It's literally, just, if, you, if you Google Games Master Kickstarter, that's it. It'll, it'll come up, you know. Um, I mean, on my Twitter, I've got a link to it on my, on my Twitter, which is Dominic Diamond and that. But um, but yeah, just just Google Kickstarter Games Master and you'll, uh, and you'll find that easily enough. You mentioned uh, Patrick Moore there again and the yeah. chaos of Games Master. How did he fit into all this with all the, everything that was going on? Because he seems an upstanding sort of gentleman, you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, he he was, he he, he did all this stuff at like different times. He was never on the main set. Like, uh, you know, when it, after all that stuff had been done, he'd literally pop in for like a day and he'd have his bits written for him and he would just knock them all off and uh, and they would go for a curry. That was his thing, he st- one of his stipulations. They had to take him for a curry for lunch. He loved his curry, Patrick, bless him. So yeah, so he'd, you know, he'd, he'd read this stuff out that he didn't really understand, but he had such wonderful comic timing that he just nailed it perfectly every time so we do that for four hours go for a chicken tikka masala come back do that for another four hours put his coat on and, and go back to uranus basically <laughs> and, um, he, um, so uh, so yeah so i i never i never met him uh at all i certainly never saw him at the same parties as me and no gallagher <laughs> i wish would have been fun uh, so uh, i never met him until literally the last day of filming and i'm really glad i did it was completely accidental it wasn't planned he just happened to be walking out as i was going in to do some voiceover and so i had a wee chat with him uh, about uh, about cricket of all things i've always liked the cricket and he he was on his way to lords i think to after it for something so yeah we talk about cricket and then uh, and then that was it that was my one and only time I met him, which is weird because I think, again, doing this book and, and, and the other great thing about the, the Kickstarter has been hearing from people who uh, who love the show and that's really blown me away. 30 years is a long time to, to remember something and it's amazing how many of them, like how many people, we're a double act and I never knew it. We're a TV double act and, I, it's, it's, and it's weird thinking like that because I only met the person once. So it's, um, yeah, I'm glad I met him. Glad I met him. And then you went into radio. What? How did that all happen? Was that just a natural progression? Yeah, I am. Um, I, I kind of did the two things uh, concu- uh, co concurrently. No, simultaneously. That's a better one. Let's use the proper word, Dominic, for God's sake. That posh education at Strathallan, my mum will be shaking her head. Yes, <laughs> I did the two simultaneously. After uh, Series 2 of Games Master, I started working on BBC Radio 5 Live, doing a sports phone in there. That ran for about 10 years. 
again, that's just, you know, it's just another of those ridiculously lucky things. I used to get letters from people. Oh, you know, I'm doing a media degree and how do I, how do I break into radio? It's my dream. You know, how did you do it? And I said, well, I just started off in telly and worked my way down. You know, so, it's, <laughs> so, it's, um, so again, and it was just, it's just really lucky that if, you know, you first have a job in radio and it's the BBC, you know, so, so that was amazing. Uh, certainly, a lot more fun than than commercial radio is. I've not. That's always a struggle. Uh, even when I've done stuff that has been a lot of fun, XFM Scotland was the only thing I think I've ever done in my life that I would put on a par with Games Master in terms of of like how good it was and how much I enjoyed it. But it's such a relentless battle with corporate suits all the time and talk less, play more of the same 10 shite songs every station's playing. And, uh, you know, and so, I, you know, I, I, I did that when I came to Canada. I didn't I didn't plan on working. I was planning on retiring with this, you know, we farm, but we just ran out of money in the first year. And so I, I started again, for, literally from the very bottom as a complete unknown in radio on a tiny station called CKBW in Bridgewater, Nova Scotia. And was very lucky that worked hard, managed to climb my way up to doing breakfast shows in, in Toronto and in Calgary and Halifax, Nova Scotia. And, uh, but it's, you know, it's hard work. You're always fighting against the horrible forces of, of, of commercialism. And, uh, so, so I stopped that a couple of years ago. I realized that I had my first kid in 1998 and to just keep going at any level of the media takes so much work that I neglected, the, the kind of things I should have done as a dad for my kids. And that was one of the reasons for coming over to Canada was to say, right, I'm going to focus more on my kids because I'd, I'd managed to have three of them by that point. And so the first year when we ran out of money was brilliant because I didn't work. All I did for a year was swim about in rivers and walk trails with my kids. And it was just the best year of my life. But, you know, unfortunately, no, you don't get paid for that. So um, so I had to start again. And sadly, as a result, you, 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 you fall into the same trap. You know, you have to work every, especially as a foreigner, you know, because uh, it's quite a struggle to get, you know, radio work when you've got a different accent. You know, I don't know how many Canadian radio people that are on air in the UK just now, but, you know, I was the first Scottish guy to kind of to do it over here. And I was very lucky that I had enough visionary bosses. And I, I was at a time initially when they were looking to make radio a bit different. And then unfortunately, like in the UK, it all started getting networked from the big cities, cutbacks, everything like that. So I saw the writing was on the wall. And um, so, and again, I just, I'd, I'd missed another eight, nine years of my kids' lives. So this time, it's like third time lucky, you know? I, I loved writing the book. I loved it so much. I started writing another book, a novel based on, the crazy life that I had in Nova Scotia. So hopefully the Games Master book will, you know, will tide me over till I can get that one published. And then I'd love nothing more than to just be able to sit in my house and uh, write with my wee bottle of Astis Pumanti. Um, and, um, I can't believe we're on the third glass of it. <laughs> and be there for, you know, and be there for my kids, you know, finally. As my youngest kid's like 15. It's like about time, Dad, you know. But um, but yeah, a quieter life definitely now, hopefully. Now, I, I used to work with a few Canadians in Hong Kong now. Are Canadians really nice or is that just a myth? They really are. You know, they really are. They are the nicest, loveliest people in the world. And uh, and it's it's an incredible country. It's so tolerant. It's so liberal. It's, uh, you know, I, I don't want to go too far down 
the whole sectarian topic. But it, it, I remember the first time on radio in Toronto when I happened to mention a funny story, blah, 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 and I was coming out of mass and I was like, oh, no, you've said you go to mass. The phone lines are going to light up. It's going to be hate mail. And I'm like, oh, you're not in Glasgow anymore. Oh, <laughs> so you realise no one cares. It's okay. It's brilliant. But it, it kind of goes it goes both ways in that um, uh, I love them to bits the Canadians, but I've followed two football teams over here, Toronto FC, um, my local team now, Calgary Cavalry. They're the worst football supporters in the world, Canadians, because they're just they're just too polite. They're pathetic. <laughs> they really don't. And luckily, both those teams have got a massive contingent of UK expat fans. It's basically UK expat fans and South American expats. So they're the ones that bring the pyro and the drums and all that uh-huh. and the swearing. And it's so funny. It's the only time I've ever really appreciated boisterous, noisy English football hooligan fans is because you're sitting there half asleep in Canada and one of them will pipe up with, the referee's a wanker! And you're like, oh yes, this is what it's like. <laughs> Are they allowed to drink in stadiums over there, Dom? Yes. Oh yeah, it's all, it's amazing. That, again, I, this is what's so kind of crazy is that people will get absolutely paralytic at football matches here and, and there's you know never any trouble. And hockey, you know, the, probably ice hockey, the most violent sport in the world, a sport where people actually drop gloves and fight, you know, as part of the game. And there's people, mixed fans, sitting together having a drink, and I've never seen so much as one fight at a hockey. It must just be a, a cultural thing, you know, this, 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 this different between, you know, Canada and the UK. You can't get Kirgil's ice cream, though, which is a bit of a pain <laughs> over here. I've looked for that, you know. Best ice cream in the world, still. That was my. That was actually my, uh, and I have to say that part of my love for Kirgil's ice cream, that was actually my, my first job was, and in some ways it was the best job I ever had. And Steve Kirgil, bless him, gave me this because uh, I needed money. I couldn't get a job anywhere I was because I was 15. So he said, well, do you want to come and help with my accounts, right? Help my accountant. And I'm like, yeah, do math. So I started that. And then he's like, one day he's like, listen, Donna, I'm really sorry. I, you know, I know we got you on to do the accounts, but if you don't think it's like beneath it, do you mind giving the ice cream vans a quick clean? So I was like, no, no bother, Steve. So I went to start cleaning them and I saw like, I saw the fizzy cola bottles now, so I take one, take another, and everything. By the end of the week, I was ninety nine percent ice cream van cleaner and one percent accountant. It was the best job ever. It was the only job as good as a security guard at Abbey National. It's cleaning ice cream vans and hoovering up all the sweets, which is absolutely brilliant. Now, before we wrap up, very quickly, Games Master, who was your favourite guest? Would you say? <laughs> Not just Games Master, maybe anything you were on. Um, oh, well, see, that's a good question. Right. Do you know what? F- favourite Games Master guest, I-, I mean, I'll say Robbie, because he's written the forward for the book. I also love Zoe Ball. They, they-, they were my two favourites, because Zoe Ball got it. She was so much fun. You know, some people say, especially in 2021, we live in much more evolved uh, times and we're all a bit more woke, is that um, people will say, you know, I can't believe all the dirty jokes you did with women back in those days. That's That was really terrible. And I said, no, the, they were all in on the gag. I would talk to them beforehand and say, now listen, I'm going to I'm gonna be knob-gagging my way throughout this interview. Are you okay with that? And Zoe Ball was just like, Zoe Ball literally said, hey, don't you worry about me, sunshine. And so so when Zoe Ball was, was playing this uh, full throttle, it was a motorbike game, uh, and I said to her, I said, um, have you, this is, you know, being filmed, so have you ever 
been a, have you ever, uh, do you enjoy riding motorbikes? She says, no, but I like it up the back. And I was just like, oh, that's it. That's it. I am not worthy. You know, you have, you have absolutely out knob gagged me. So she was great. I've been, I've been so lucky that as part of the Canadian radio career that I, I work for a lot of classic rock stations. And so I was fortunate enough to get to interview some of my own kind of big musical heroes. Uh, Roger Waters from Pink Floyd was was probably my favorite one of all time. He was he was taking um, the Wall Show on on tour himself, and I uh, I was told I could get fifteen minutes with him on the phone. And so I was like, oh my God, this is like one of my all-time heroes. And it's great. You know, there's a connection to Arbroath here because the only panto that I ever did in Arbroath, and I can't remember what the pantomime was, but it was the same Christmas that Pink Floyd got to number one with Brick in the Wall because I remember all the sound guys and lighting guys getting really excited because Pink Floyd's got to number one. And uh, and they were always the guys that smell of patchouli oil. And now it is, maybe it wasn't <laughs> quite patchouli oil. Maybe it was something else, but they all seem to like Pink Floyd. So yeah, I was so excited about this and I, I spent a whole week preparing for the interview. I had like seven sheets of A4 preparation and notes and we had a power cut just before I was due to interview him. And uh, and so there's a photograph, there's uh, my producer, my pal Flair Boy, literally is holding a torch up. We got the soundboard to work, the lights weren't, he's got a torch on my pages of notes. And, and the day before, Roger Waters, who's a notoriously cantankerous soul, he walked off an interview with 60 minutes, like this big interview. So I'm like, oh, Dominic, don't fuck it up, 15 minutes and everything. I ended up an hour and 10 minutes with the guy. It was just one of those things. I loved it. I'd worked so hard to make the chat interesting. He liked the chat and it was just my absolute dream. So he's the kind of favourite kind of guest thing ever. Uh, oh, Jimmy, see, I'm going to... Jimmy Carr. I, what's great as well is that when these comedians tour Canada and they'll always come on your show as a guest. Um, so I probably wouldn't get Jimmy Carr if I was uh, doing a radio show in the UK, but but I had Jimmy on the phone when he was doing a, a gig in Calgary and he was just, he was absolutely brilliant. He was such a, such a funny guy as well. So um, the thing, I, I, there's not really a lot of bad guests, to be honest. I think that most... Most people are professional. Most people know that, you know, you're, you're singing, they're all singing for their supper. And uh, so there's not really been anyone that's been uh, that's, that's been really bad, I would say. We do want to talk about a bad one, to be honest. We need to hear the okay. David Williams story. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, that's that's such a shame, guys. We, we, were, we really were the very best of friends at university. You know, like I say, I gave David his first stand-up thing and he's a very strange character. And uh, and he certainly was. I was in second year. He was came along in first year, and uh, he rubbed a lot of people up the wrong way. I found it fascinating. <laughs> I um, I, uh, I I found him fascinating because he was a really smart guy and a really funny guy. And when he was rubbing you. Yeah, but he, was, he rubbed me the right way. And um, so uh, we, we were both, he loved the history of comedy. So I'd spend hours talking with him. And I actually made an effort saying to people, no, no, listen, let him come out for a pint with us. He's a good guy. So yeah, we were really close. And um, and I, I got him, he was actually, a, he was a runner on series two of Games Master. I got him that job. And so I always tried to give him a leg up. And then when I did the show on Paramount, Dominic Kirk's Night of Plenty when he was just starting out with Matt Lucas. They did a thing called Mash and Peas then and they came on as guests and they just... Matt Lucas was not a guy I ever particularly liked. He uh, he was an... You know, he met David later. We had our gang 
our Bristol kind of comedy gang. And it was one of our, Katie Carmichael, who ended up being in uh, uh, Bread and Coronation Street. Uh, lovely girl, a Liverpool actress. And she was appearing at a play in London with Stephen Berkoff, and we all went to see it. And David introduced me to this guy. Oh, this is this guy, Matt Lucas, I've been doing comedy stuff with. And he's one of those guys, he didn't like the fact that we had our group and he was the outsider. So there was a thing going on. I just got bad vibes from him. And then so that night, at what I'm utterly convinced was Matt Lucas's doing, they decided to sabotage the show. And it was just a wee show on a cable channel, but it was live, you know, and it's my livelihood. And and they just destroyed it by just arsing about and fucking chucking darts and behaving appallingly. I, I was I was really upset. And, and here's the worst thing, guys, is that um, you can't hide on live TV. If it was live radio, that's you know you can you know, people can't see you. You could point to people. You can write stuff. But to have it go wrong on live TV is a certain kind of hell. It's like stand up comedy. It's like dying a death in stand up comedy. So I've got to try and keep the show on the rails somehow while dealing with this and a betrayal of one of my best friends. Yeah, so yeah. it was a terrible thing for them to do. I was absolutely furious. And and you see me at the end of it running off set and I had Matt Lucas pinned up against the wall by the throat and I had my hand back and I, I would I, I would have killed, I would have put him in the hospital that night. I was so angry. And the security guard dragged me off and I turned and I just saw David's face and I knew that he was like, oh shit. So was it Matt that you actually grabbed then? I thought it was David. It was Matt you grabbed. No, no, David's David's too big. <laughs> always, always go for the wee guy. Play, playground rules, you know. You can <laughs> take the guy out of our growth. Eh? <laughs> so, um, and it's a shame, and that, um, and and my mum, bless her, who follows this stuff, says that when he had his autobiography came out, and apparently he was very apologetic about that and said it was a really wrong thing for him to do, which is fair enough. But you know, fuck, you know my email address, David. See, very trust me, it's very easy to apologize in a book. I've done a whole one about Games Master where I do nothing but apologize to people. It's easy. You want to apologize, fucking email me, you shite bag. <laughs> well, well, we put it out. We'll tag him. Just, just, just we'll try and mend the rest. We'll try and mend That's the rest it. for you. There you yeah, go. Well, hashtag shite bag. Yeah. <laughs> Dominic, this has been brilliant. We don't want to take up too much of your time. We know it's early morning there, and when you're on Spamante, anything could happen. <laughs> but this has been fantastic for us. It's great to speak to someone that's from our local town as well that's made it. So all the best to you, all the best to the book. And when Thank the new you. one comes out, maybe we'll get a chance to chat again and and, and help plug that for you as well. Yeah, and, and again, it would be good to do it in person. Uh, I, my, I, I, It's such a shame that COVID has, uh, has kind of, you know, with what COVID's done, I'm I'm desperate to get back to our growth. I, I had a wee thing recently on Twitch that I did when lockdown started, and I reckon seventy five percent of the audience were from our growth. The loyalty was brilliant. It descended into just stories about our growth, which really confused Canadians. Obviously, <laughs> and, um, and it was brilliant, and it made me just uh, just fall in love, you know, with my hometown in a way that I don't think I ever have felt before. Um, so uh, I missed the place. I was lucky enough that I went back. Only time I've ever been back to, to the UK in 11 years was about five years ago for my brother Conrad's second wedding, which thankfully turned out a lot more successful than his first. Um, <laughs> and um, so I made a point of uh, of taking my kids up to Scotland. Um, my, uh, my two youngest were born in Glasgow and I took them to Arbroath, all three of them. Um, even the one that was born in England, I thought, oh, all right, you can come too. <laughs> and um, and, uh, and we went to Peppo's and we got fish and chips and it was just so lovely. 
and we went out the cliffs and it was so great to be able to share that with uh, with my own children and I hope to do it again at some point and uh, and yeah so uh, so thanks very much guys it's uh, I, I, I love the place I'm very lucky it, it was a good place to be born it was a great place uh, to to be a kid it, it, it really first time I ever entertained people and and it really set me on the path so thank you very much to to the tune if you do come back we'll certainly do a live one then that's a that's a that's a bit that's a date with it with a decent wine I promise I won't make you guys drink Asti's we'll, we'll choose the next one <laughs> but, but but yeah but here's to the here's to the steeple oh yeah so one one, one fight right fight find a wee story okay and it's about the steeple because I, I don't think I, I, haven't, I haven't told the story before because I don't get asked for stories about our broth a lot <laughs> never <laughs> so um, but this ties in with Asti's humanity is that um, so the first year that I took my wee brother Conrad, who people will also remember fondly, um, and uh, I took him down to the steeple. And it was like, my mum and dad, look after your brother, right? Look after your brother. Of course I will put it in there, look after your brother. He must have been about 12, 13, somewhere, maybe 13, 14. I think I was about 16. I was definitely 16 for reasons that will become obvious in a minute. <laughs> so it comes to midnight, right? Are you right, Conrad? Hey, you know, Ashley Spivati gets pop snogging people. And I happened to meet a, a, a rather lovely lassie. I won't, uh, I won't spare her name because I know for a fact that she still lives in the town and she's Facebook friends with probably most people who listen to this podcast. Mm. Right, lovely lassie. And I, and I, I ended up popping down to her flat um, with her, uh, which was wonderful. And I completely forgetting that I'd left my wee brother. And I literally was like lying there. I went, Oh my God, my brother Conrad. And I ran from her flat. I ran back. Well, I couldn't find him anywhere. So I had to phone my mum and dad, and they were absolutely raging. And we found, <laughs> shouldn't laugh, we found him lying in a gutter, absolutely paralytically drunk. And um, so, um, so it probably could have ended up really, really horribly that night. So yeah, I think that uh, the minute that I tasted that first sip of Asti's Pumari, I remembered that lovely lassie and I remembered that terrible thing that I did to my brother. So sorry, Conrad. Um, that's why I'm not going to have any more of it today, just in case I end up doing something terrible. We're now, we're now going to have a giveaway prize contest Absolutely. to see who's going to get us. Yeah. And there is nothing we like better on this show than a happy ending, and it doesn't get any happier than that. So Dominic Diamond... Thank you very, very much. It's been our pleasure. Oh, listen, uh, thanks, JB. Thanks, JB. It's been absolutely brilliant. You've been listening to the Smokies and Wine podcast, sponsored by Clack and View Wealth Management, working with you today to plan for your tomorrow.